This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. morning. It's Monday, September the 5th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Feeling good on a Monday as those horns are blaring away. Thank you for starting your week wherever you may be in listener land or the viewer vortex. Coming up on the show today, Canadian auto workers have reached a tentative deal with Ford. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press recaps the latest. Cruise revealed their prototype for wheelchair accessible robo taxis. Marco Pasqua shares his thoughts on the potential for self driving vehicles, especially where they intersect with accessibility. And WordPress Accessibility Day is September the 27th. Stephen Scott gives you a preview of what's to come. But the show begins with the top story of the day and there are a few stories here from the world of healthcare that you need to know about. New research is putting the spotlight on surgery wait times for young people. The Conference Board of Canada report shows that 2,800 children are waiting for spinal cord surgery related to scoliosis. The report shows that 40% of those young people are not getting the procedure within the recommended six-month period. Children's Healthcare Canada commissioned the report, CHC, is calling for more funding to hire pediatric orthopedic surgeons, nurses, and anesthesiologists. Another story from the healthcare world that I thought you may find interesting this morning. A group of Canadian healthcare workers say people who are marginalized should be prioritized for access to a primary care provider. Lori Paris takes a closer look. The recommendations include proactive prevention and screening measures for certain cancers, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, depression, HIV and AIDS, and tuberculosis. Lead author and St. Michael's Hospital physician Dr. Nav Prasad compares the right to have a primary care provider to a child's right to go to school, saying getting a family doctor or nurse practitioner should be automatic. He says many people who are racialized, identify as LGBTQ or have low incomes face barriers to important screenings that can save lives and reduce illness. Lori Paris, the Canadian Press. Having a couple issues with our graphics here this morning, so you're going to see a lot of my face during the course of this segment. Uh, unluckily for you, I ate a lot of carbohydrates this weekend. Let's get to another story from the world of politics and the economy. The clock is ticking for the United States Congress to reach a funding deal. Faith Abube has the latest. Congress needs to reach an agreement on spending bills before October 1st in order to keep the federal government operating. But a group of Republican hardliners are refusing to budge on several issues, including spending cuts. They insist their demands be met before they offer support to Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Last night, Trump posted this message to his supporters in the House. Quote, unless you get everything, shut it down. But Republican Congressman Mike Turner is expressing confidence in McCarthy. Well, this is very difficult. You know, I'll bet on, on Kevin McCarthy any day and we certainly have time yet to go but he's in a very difficult position 
Time yet to go. You have six days. By the way, for those keeping score at home, this is the second time this year U.S. Congress has been on the precipice of a funding shutdown and a government shutdown. It's almost like they don't want democracy to work in the United States. Going over to Europe, a group of young people are taking 32 European countries to court for a lack of urgency in dealing with climate change. Lawrence Brooks has the story. The case, which is to be heard on Wednesday, will be the first of its kind filed with the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Victory could compel governments to radically recalibrate their climate policies and significantly slash planet warming emissions. The court's rulings are legally binding and failure to comply makes countries liable for hefty fines. It's the latest instance of young people sidestepping politics and using the courts to hold governments to account on climate action. One survey says there have been over 2,000 climate-related cases filed globally. I'm Lawrence Brooks. Okay, from our warming planet to the cosmos. A NASA spacecraft dropped off a sample taken from asteroid Bennu yesterday. Science advisor to the president of the Canadian Space Agency, John Moores, talks about Canada's role in the mission and what this little sliver of rock means for research. Ola played a really key role. It helped the mission team select the best location from which to gather that sample of the asteroid, the one that will be coming back to Earth shortly. And in exchange for this contribution, Canadian scientists have been on the OSIRIS-REx science team from the very beginning. As well, Canada will become the fifth country in the world to receive a sample collected in space. Canadian Space Agency representative Caroline Emmanuel Mouchesset talks about how much can be learned from a little bit of asteroid. You know, with milligrams of sample, we can do a lot of science. So, and and a good example is the Hayabusa 2 mission from JAXA brought back altogether uh, five grams. And, you know, there's still, there's decades to come uh, of results on Hayabusa 2. So it's it's a great size samples. And yes, so we're working on developing the facility uh, for receiving the samples uh, at CSA. The facility that you heard Marisette talk about is going to be built south of Montreal. Okay, that's your look at the news. Let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find the show on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find the show on Facebook. On Friday, I had a bee in my bonnet about modern website design and definitely a fought with a few more crown corporations over the weekend for their websites that are becoming increasingly mobile optimized that make it harder to get the information you're looking for the question you were asked on Friday. How do you feel about the evolution of website design? 33% of you said great. 33% of you said good. 0% of you said bad. And 34% of you are with me and said it is terrible. It's brutal. It's awful. Some responses here on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Nancy writes in, sites are still not, are still using small print and no way to adjust the font. And even when you print it off, it's too small. Tammy comments. That's good. However, some websites are not completely accessible. And Francis writes in, even websites on vision loss research are and coping techniques use terrible and small, delicate fonts. So I'm very happy that uh, Francis and uh, Nancy are big time on deck with me saying, hey, the fonts are too small and you're still not sharing enough information, you jabronis. Today's Daily Poll. 
coming from the world of labor relations and labor unions. The topic of labor relations is going to come up a few times over the course of the next 60 minutes on the show. So the question I'm asking you at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, how have changing economic conditions affected your thoughts on organized labor and unions? Positively, negatively, or they haven't. So when I talk about changing economic conditions, of course, that's kind of a coded word for inflation and the cost of living. But I thought economic conditions was a nice way of not being too buzzworthy about the whole thing. But of course, there's also the news story that Michelle McQuig's going to have in a couple of moments about Ford reaching a deal with their union, a reported tentative agreement between Hollywood writers and the studios. I've also got some healthcare stories, and there were some protests in Montreal over the weekend about public sector employees being unhappy with current payment conditions. So there's lots to talk about here in the labor relations world and the labor unions deal, but I do feel instinctively that when you talk about what's been about 15 years of flat wage growth, it was okay when inflation was low, but once inflation started spiking, it made you think, hey, maybe organized labor and unions fighting for you is important. Collective action could mean something in the world of modern capitalism. Let's bring in John Lepke. John, you're filling in for Amanda Shikarchi today in the entertainment role, but we said, hey, we're going to drag John in for the Daily Poll as well. John, how have current conversations and economic conditions impacted your thoughts on organized labor? Am I allowed to say positively-ish? Yes, of course. Uh, I think I'm with you, Dave, that unions are really important in our current economic moment. Um, my ish comes from the fact that historically, um, or you know, in, in my working life anyway, uh, unions are very good at protecting disabled workers who become disabled on the job and less good at protecting disabled workers who uh, came in with it. Um, so I think optimistic in terms of the impact that unions can make, but still concerned about those they leave behind and who they don't consider part of the movement, whether it's socially or, or um, consciously or unconsciously. That's an interesting observation because that is one of the topics that sometimes comes up around unions, that sometimes there can be a little bit of exclusionary policy in the rhetoric. There might be a brotherhood or a sisterhood within the union, but there might still be some exclusion outwardly looking. And I think you maybe identified it right there from a disability point of view, but that was also the case when it came to race relations 40 and 50 years ago. Okay, Absolutely. No, and okay. I think... <laughs> Sorry, no, I can go. <laughs> little delay there. Okay, John, I thought you were leaving me hanging. No, no, I, I absolutely. And I think sometimes my, my experiences with unions, I've been members of a couple, sometimes the, the ways that unions talk and the way that um, policy gets uh, layered on top of each other means that those policies can actually be remarkably inaccessible if people aren't thinking in terms of access just in terms of what, you know, a lot of these unions are really longstanding and have policy upon policy upon policy that isn't always accessible. And uh, harkening back to uh, your website conversation from Friday, often do are, do are affected by that inaccessibility of small fonts and the like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Plain language, small fonts, you know, the things that I uh, ring the bell for every day. Alex Smythe, what about you? How have a change in economic conditions affected your perception of organized labor and unions? Definitely positively, Dave, uh, because 
you look at what the conversations have been around the last uh, couple of years since the pandemic, it was all about, you know, the the wage gap, the uh, the kind of top 1% gaining more and more money while the, um, the the average Canadians, the average Americans, they're, they're struggling to make ends meet as the cost of living, as inflation, as all these different factors come into play, go higher and higher. To see the value of a union that has taken labor action across many different industries the past few years, from nursing to teaching to the the actors and writing and, and uh, auto workers, the port workers, it's encouraging because you're seeing tangible results within those industries. They're coming to deals, they're, uh, they're coming to agreements that are improving the situation for members of those unions. So I, I think from an economic standpoint, you can't help but view it positively that they're, we're all calling that, oh, you know, wages should be meeting and, and trying to keep pace with inflation in some way, shape or form, maybe not tit for tat, but at least increasing as uh, inflation goes up. They're actually putting into work and making it happen. So you got to feel positive about that. Like I said, organized labor and union deals are going to be a focal point of a few different news stories today throughout the show. It will be a common thread. But in the meantime, let your voice be heard. Speak and scream from the mountaintops, whether it be voting on social media, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, whether that's yelling into the email void, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or picking up the phone and giving the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, Canadian, Canadian auto workers have reached a deal with Ford Motor Company. Michelle McQuig from the Canadian Press will offer up the latest. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The union representing Canadian auto workers in Ford have reached a labor deal. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig has some more details. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Hello, Michelle. Can we open up Michelle's microphone? Uh, there we go. Hello. Now we Good got morning, you, Michelle. Dave and now, <laughs> hello to everyone, indeed. So, Michelle, this uh, got ratified yesterday. What are some of the relevant known details of the deal? So, yes, it did get ratified yesterday. In fact, I think the ratification figure, it did strike me as one interesting aspect because it is a very good deal with lots of very significant gains, and I'll run those through. But even with all that, it only got ratified with 54% support. Wow, wow. So, yeah. Uh, so, despite all that, it clearly uh, was not at all universally seen as a huge win, despite the fact that we're looking at a 15% wage increases over three years, starting with an initial 10% bump in the first year, 2% the year after that, three year, uh, 3% for the third year. So this is a three-year deal. Um, what else have we got? We got two new paid vacation days. We have a $10,000 bonus for anyone. Uh, there's a shift towards the defined benefits pension plan, which is a really interesting new potential trend in labor relations and benefit, like pension activity there. Um 
And yeah, the, the upshot of this is that when, when all is said and done, uh, one example we have here is that a Ford worker who has one year of seniority right now uh, would have their wages go up from to $25.75 an hour to, let's see, $46.13 by the end of the three-year term. Wow. Wow. That is a significant increase. There's there's no doubt yeah. about that one, Michelle. So the auto strike in the United States continues. In fact, uh, President Joe Biden is going to be appearing on the picket lines today, and that won't get political at all. Oh, but, oh not, not, not a bit. But where does wow. the labor relations in the auto industry, auto, indis, auto industry, easy for me to say, uh, go from <laughs> here in terms of maybe the Canadian perspective? Yeah. So for what, the Canadian perspective, Unifor, was, it was really pushing this deal hard because they, what they wanted and what they now have was for this to be the template for new negotiations with the other automakers. This deal only applies to Ford. It still covers about 5,600 people or so, but they have to go through the same process again with General Motors and Stellantis. And we don't actually know which one of those automakers is up next, but whichever one it will be, this Ford deal is going to be pointed to as the precedent, as the sort of template to follow um, and it's considered, you, you talked about the U.S. workers, uh, there is a school of thought out there that says that this kind of win for Unifor could help guide some negotiations out there as well, because, of course, the uh, the UAW um, and, and Unifor, they're not the same or, or working in lockstep, but they certainly are in, in regular contact and they're looking to each other for for some support and, and precedent setting there too. Yeah, at the very least, you can say there's some similar goals. But Michelle, you're right. That ratification number at 54%, that goes back to a topic that you and I explored a couple times with the BC port workers, with the metro grocery workers in Toronto. It's, again, it goes yep. back to this thought that you and I have been sharing both here and in the news panel that, that there may even still be a little bit of a disconnect between union leadership and rank and file just based on current economic conditions. Yeah, and it just shows how how strong how much stronger the push is for even more gains, despite the fact that and and previous, uh, you know, pre-inflationary pre-COVID times, this would have been considered an unequivocal. Oh yeah, huge win. Massive. Like, like, yeah. So I I I was really struck by that number, partially because of what we've been talking about. But yeah, to me that really is indicative of the fact that there's wider spread discontentment that I think people bargained for. Mm -hmm. If you'll pardon the accidental pun yeah. there. Sorry uh, about that. No, absolutely. And anyway, <laughs> so, so a little bit later in the hour, John Lepke and I are going to talk about the uh, tentative deal between the Hollywood writers, but there's also labor strife in Quebec with the public sector right now, uh, health workers oh, yeah, in Nova that was Scotia. Up on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, there's no there's no shortage of stories to discuss in regards to uh, to labor, labor unions and the general economic landscape. But Michelle, let's go over to the world of politics. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky had an official visit to Canada over the weekend. Michelle, let's break this down into three pieces. What happened in Ottawa on Friday, the controversy around what happened in Ottawa on Friday, and then a little bit about uh, Zelensky's uh, Toronto trip on Saturday. So let's start sure. with yeah. Parliament. Hold the, hold the controversy off for a second, but what you are bet. the takeaways from Zelensky's Friday in Ottawa? The takeaways was that this was Zelensky's second address to Canadian Parliament, but the first one in person, and it had all the pageantry that you would possibly expect. Uh, he had very uh, high praise from the Prime Minister who spoke before him in Parliament. Zelensky himself spoke for just shy of 20 minutes or so. Um, strong, strong condemnation of Russia, of course, high praise for Canada, talking about how justice is not an empty concept here. I'm, I'm quoting him. 
Uh, there was an announcement of about $650 million of new aid for Russia over, or, excuse me, for Ukraine. My goodness. That would have um, been, that would have been a political misstep in, uh, in Oh, wow. Time. Yeah. Pardon me. That, that was a strong misspeaking. <laughs> $650 to support Ukraine in their war against Russia um, over the next several years, including building new armored cars in London, Ontario. So a little domestic uh, economic thing there as well. Um, and yeah, let's think of Zelensky threw in a little phrase of anecdote at the end after uh, a meeting with Mary Simon, the governor general, earlier in the day. So lots of bits and pieces of, for a very sort of uh, official grand reception for mm -hmm. the for the Ukrainian mm -hmm. president. So that was the sunshine. Okay, what on earth happened in terms of House Speaker Anthony Rota inviting someone who fought for the Nazis in World War II to Parliament? Great question. Uh, that that really is the key one. We don't know what happened here. Um, at the end of President Zelensky's address, Speaker Anthony Rota got up and, and offered some extremely fulsome praise for the president himself, for comparing him to Nelson Mandela. And then he went and introduced a, someone he described as a Ukrainian war veteran from the Second World War. He was 98 years old. He was in a wheelchair up in the gallery. And it said he, that he fought... The speaker described him as fighting against the Russians for Ukraine. With the first, he did not mention the first Ukrainian division by name, but we got that information from our photographers who speak, spoke with Mr. Hunka, that's his name, and his attendants. The first Ukrainian division was a voluntary Nazi unit. So that is uh, causing quite the controversy and quite the stir since then. Speaker Rota has taken full blame for this. He said that this was entirely his his decision. He had his allocated seating. This was a gentleman who lived in his riding, and he felt this would be an appropriate person to have here. He said he has only learned about his Nazi affiliations after the fact, and he's been very careful to say that no one else in government or as part of the new Ukrainian delegation, of course, was aware that this was going to happen or that this person was in the house. But that has gone nowhere to us having extreme concern and, and anger and, and betrayal from the Jewish community across Canada. Yeah, especially uh, two days before Yom Kippur, one of the highest holidays uh, for the Jewish community. Uh, to do that is quite the quite the misstep. Um, I am here to acknowledge that Central and Eastern Europe can get a little bit complex in regards to occupation and occupied areas during World War II. But if you're going to bring someone to the halls of Parliament and honor them, you better do your research. And I feel like this was such. A, this comes up oftentimes when talking about this government unforced errors. This is like the definition of an unforced error like you've got to do a little bit this more is than such saying, an like, own goal yeah. it's it astonishing it really is you've <laughs> got to do a little bit better than like oh are there ukrainian people in my district who can i bring to parliament for like an easy win and then absolutely like totally 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 blow it uh michelle especially because fighting against russia almost means automatically that you were on the side of germany if you know your world war ii history even a little bit it, that's uh, it that's it this ought to raise a question or two it, it's 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 quite striking, the whole thing. It really, really is. And that fallout is going to continue uh, throughout the week. So uh, let's leave oh, it there. Yes. Uh, Michelle, what about Zelensky's visit to Toronto on Saturday? Yeah, that, uh, well, it was actually later on Friday. It was all the oh, same pardon day. Me. It was pardon an me. extraordinarily busy day for the, for the Ukrainian president and, and his wife. Uh, but they came to Toronto and had a huge welcome, about a thousand people packing the, on the Toronto armory. Uh, which you see that held for like huge political campaigns and stuff. It's a big venue and it was, it was quite chock-a-block there. 
very warm reception. A lot of everyday Ukrainians who were just delighted to have the president here. They, they see him as, as a, a protector of the homeland and something of a hero. Uh, so there was a lot of, of unanimity, pro-Ukraine sentiment, a uh, lot of love for Zelensky and, and his wife, Alina, and uh, a very sort of celebratory and, and happy vibe during that particular visit. There you go. See, we sandwiched, we sandwiched the controversy with a little bit of sunshine. Michelle, thank you for this. Have a great week. Talk to you on Friday. Thank you. Take care. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, Cruise, a car and technology company, revealed their prototype for a wheelchair-accessible robo-taxi. Marco Pasqua shares his thoughts on the potential for self-driving vehicles. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Technology companies and car companies are working together to reimagine accessible taxis. Cruise revealed the prototype of a custom-built, wheelchair-accessible, self-driving robo-taxi. I know a lot of buzzwords there. I'll go for that one more time for you. The company is called Cruise, and they revealed the prototype of a custom-built, wheelchair-accessible, self-driving robo-taxi. The rectangular van is essentially a small bus. The vehicle lowers to the curb. There's an automatic ramp, plus two two securement options for people who use a wheelchair. Then, of course, there is the self-driving component. The prototype caught the attention of Marco Pasqua. Marco is the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. Hey, good morning, Marco. Good morning, Dave. How are you doing? Marco, I'm doing fantastic. I know you uh, traveled to Toronto this weekend and you whirlwinded your way back to British Columbia. But why'd this robo-taxi catch your attention? Well, I think, you know, Dave, I've always had a fascination for technology in general, but also accessible transportation. I've talked a lot about it here on the show. And when I saw that Cruise was going to be unveiling this, I thought, wow, that's really cool that they're going to be doing this. But obviously, I do have some question marks around, you know, the feasibility of this, the safety of this. Mm. Um, but I just thought it would be worth opening up a conversation with you. I love talking about transit and transportation, Marco. It's such a vital piece of the inclusion and disability question, and also modern transportation just for everybody, right? It's like the definition of inclusion across the board. So yeah. I was struck by the design of the vehicle itself, essentially a rectangular minibus. Maybe not the most <laughs> uh, curvy or beautiful car in the world, but it struck me as really utilitarian and functional because of that rectangular design. How do you think this van slash taxi design could end up becoming a template? Well, I think uh, really it's important to understand that we want to have the space that is needed for people who use mobility devices and other devices to get around. I mean, so I think that by having the right size of a vehicle, depending on a, an individual's uh, power wheelchair, for example, this might mean that it's a little bit more spacious, less chance that they're going to run into issues if they're trying to go in the taxi by themselves. Mm. Uh, they're not going to accidentally topple over by going on the side. And it makes it really easy for them to lock themselves in place. Now, I did read 
read on the article that for manual chair users, they may want to go with an attendant because there is, you know, straps that need to be strapped on. Whereas a power chair user apparently can go with certain models and have themselves locked right in and sent to their destination. But the ultimate thing here is just the autonomy and the freedom of being able to hopefully do this independently. So I do hope that this sets the bar for other vehicles and other providers to think, hey, why didn't we think of this first? It's just yeah. it's so much better than just delivery services. We can deliver people hopefully safely to their destination. Yeah, from a design perspective to say that the vehicle is automatically going to lower and the ramp is going to deploy automatically. Mm -hmm. Again, that might sound like a really basic concept, but that is not the case in current accessible vehicle technology. It it is not. In fact, it is really challenging. Sometimes uh, I look at, you know, accessible taxi uh, drivers and the, the size that they give when they know they have to, oh, okay, I got to pick up another passenger with a disability. Like, not everyone that I experience, but definitely, it almost seems like they don't necessarily love aspects of their job. And so maybe if you're doing this with a robo taxi, you're not going to get any flack or any size back at you simply because you want to utilize their service. So I do think that that technology is amazingly cool. And if it works well, then it does mean that somebody could just go out to their curb, get into the vehicle and go, right? And I think mm. that that's ultimately where we want to be. I mean, we want to be able to be hands-free, have the independence, and not necessarily have to have a driver's license to move around quickly in our various cities and communities. Marco, I have uh, shouted from the rooftops for years now about the potential for self-driving vehicles from my very yes. own selfish, legally blind perspective that one day I would love the freedom to be able to uh, get my own car, to get myself around and not depend on the kindness of other people or uh, one train totally. a day that goes to Kitchener, Ontario to get me to a wedding next weekend. <laughs> so I see a lot of potential in self-driving vehicles. What kind of potential do you see in self-driving vehicles? I mean, I see uh, a world of potential. I mean, honestly, we've been seeing this in sci-fi movies for years now, and it's actually starting to become a reality. Granted, I know there's a lot of regulation, and uh, actually Cruz says they're going to be starting a closed course testing as early as next month, okay? And so if this passes, there's, there's a new bill in the states that is expected to pass, and if it does, it could open the floodgates for vehicles like this to be on the road. However, I do want to preface this with we do need to make sure we're triple-checking safety uh, yeah. because a user, when I mentioned I was going to be doing this story uh, this morning, did tell me that there potentially is certain crash reports that go unreported um and i'm not sure if and that i'm not sure if that's just crews or, or companies like this mm -hmm. if they're trying to you know push it through regulation but i do for the safety of my friends family members loved ones and myself want to make sure that thorough testing is done but i am so excited dave i'm an optimist so i'm so excited at the potential yeah, I would actually tell you, based on where my brain was at about self-driving vehicles in 2017, that it actually hasn't moved as fast as I thought it would because of some of those totally. uh, crash incidents and unreported <laughs> crash incidents as well. I shouldn't giggle, I shouldn't laugh, but like it, it just it makes me <laughs> laugh. Um, but that, yeah. that's also where I land a little bit here because you and I are obviously very um, optimistic about the potential here, but there are some downsides. And when I hear about a driverless accessible taxi service, it just doesn't strike me as the best idea from a safety point of view, or if someone actually yeah. does require a little bit of assistance or something goes wrong with the vehicle, the ramp, et cetera. 
Yeah, I mean, what's if something goes wrong with the individual who's utilizing the service? What if they do need that extra support? Uh, there's no one there. Maybe there is a, a help feature where you can yell help or you can do something to indicate to a real person somewhere in a dispatch station that you need extra assistance. But I do think we need to figure out those details first before we fast track this in any kind of way. But I am excited because I think it's about time that we start to push forward with the idea of autonomous vehicles for everything that you said, Dave, that independence and that freedom for those who don't have the option uh, to drive themselves. And I want you to be able to go more places than just catching one train. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thankfully, the uh, times for this Kitchener train on the weekend are not too bad, but then I've got to figure out how to get from Kitchener to Blythe, Ontario. Still, still working on that aspect with uh, five days to yeah. go. So uh, we'll, we'll, oh we'll get there. We'll, we'll, we'll find a way. <laughs> we'll find a way. It's like in Jurassic Park. Life finds a way. Uh, <laughs> it does. And so does Dave. And so does Dave. Uh, Marco, let's yeah. switch gears here. No pun intended, sure. but the Cerebral yeah. Palsy Association of British Columbia has a pretty awesome fundraiser going on. Super, super creative. So how are they leveraging rock, paper, scissors, rock, paper, scissors into a fundraiser? Yeah, so Rock, Paper, Scissors, it's a loving uh, childhood game that we've all played uh, throughout the years, I'm sure. And so we're calling it the uh, RPS4, the number four CP challenge. And really what it is, it's our version potentially of the ice bucket challenge as you were as it was a couple of years ago. We want something to go viral. As you know, I'm the provincial spokesperson for the Shrewal Palsy Association of BC. And essentially what it is, is you go out there, you challenge a friend, family member, or loved one to a classic game, Rock, Paper, Scissors, best out of three and the person who is defeated by the uh by the individual who challenged them actually has to donate twenty dollars towards the cerebral palsy association uh in their honor and it there isn't there is even a button that says in the honor of on the website now if you're not able to do rock paper scissors in the traditional way through the website we also have digital ways in which you can play by clicking a button um, or using an app so everybody should be able to play with the play in this challenge and I'm really excited about it because it's all leading up to World CP Day on October 6th. And so this is very important to me, uh, you know, raising awareness, but also raising funds, much needed funds mm -hmm. for the Cerebral Palsy Association of BC and for individuals with CP around the world. Marco, you mentioned the Ice Bucket Challenge. At this point, how important is creativity in fundraising? I mean, it's crucial, right? I think everything has already been done at this point. Now, everyone after Ice Bucket Challenge tried to do similar things for years to come. I think we all took a beat for a moment because people were fatigued by challenges like this. But I do think that we need to get creative because so many charities are going after the same fundraising dollars, right? And so if you want to catch the eye of somebody, you got to do something that is quick, easy to do, uh, easy to understand, but gets the message out. And most importantly, the funds where they need to be. And so this is where the RR RPS for CP challenges there. Um, for people who want to participate, we encourage them to tag um, the Cerebral Palsy Association of BC. Uh, you can go to uh, rps4cp.com and they will actually take you to the page to do this, as well as using the hashtag rps4cp, uh, the number four that is, uh, on any of your social media posts that you're doing this. So Marco, 
I say you and I uh, play a best yes. of three round of rock, paper, scissors here to raise funds for the Cerebral Palsy Association of British Columbia as part of the oh, RPS4CP Challenge. And uh, hopefully we can get this up on uh, social media after the show today. So, Marco, because there's it. a little bit of TV blocking in here, let's just make sure our hands are both visible up on screen. So I got my hands up. You got your hands up. Okay, and we're going to yeah. do rock, paper, scissors. We're not going to say shoot. We're going to reveal on scissors. Got it? Yep. Okay, so round one. Okay. Here we go. Rock, paper, rock, paper scissors. scissors. Oh, we both got we rock. Both went rock, so that's a draw on the first one. Okay. Rock, okay. rock paper, paper, scissors. 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 And we both got scissors. We're scissoring each other. Oh boy. Okay. All right. Okay, so here we go. Now okay. we're we're doing best of three. This is winner takes all right here. This is this winner is takes it. all, this the whole it. operation. Okay, here we go. Okay. Rock. Rock. Paper. Paper. Scissors. Scissors. You rocked. I got rock. And I got scissors, and Marco wins. Woo! Marco, after the show, I will uh, hop onto the app. You and I can coordinate, and I will be making a $20 donation to the Cerebral Palsy Association of British Columbia. And, of course, uh, hopefully we can get this posted up on social media after the show ahead of October the 6th. Now, Marco, people can start doing this right now, though, right? Like, the, the campaign has already begun? Yeah, we're doing a soft launch as of today, uh, and so we do encourage people to go over to rps4cp.com and start to do the challenge. It's very easy. Tag us like you would anything else in social media using that hashtag, um, and we encourage everyone to share the fun. Uh, you know, we've already got some celebrities involved. I believe my colleague maybe actually did this with David Foster already, uh, uh, international composer. So uh, we're really, really excited that people are starting to get on, on board with this, and we want to see all the videos and things pouring in right on marco thank you for this amazing work as always i'm glad you had safe travels back and forth to toronto talk to you in a couple weeks sounds good man talk to you soon that's marco pasqua co-founder of meaningful access consulting in 60 seconds alex Smythe will have the weather story of the day but first here is canadian press reporter Lori paris with your morning business minutes Investors are hoping for a bounce back by Canada's main stock index to start the trading week. The S&P TSX Composite Index dropped 11 points to 19,779 on Friday. Markets stateside also start the week in the red in New York. The Dow Jones Industrial Average sank 106 points to 33,963. The S&P 500 Index fell 9 points to 4,320, while the Nasdaq Composite was down 12 points at 13,211. Shares in Asia are mostly lower, with Tokyo the only major regional market to advance after Wall Street Street wheezed to more losses with its worst week in six months. Worries over China's property sector, a U.S. government shutdown, and the continued strike by American auto workers were weighing on investor sentiment. Japan's Nikkei climbed by 276 points to close at 32,678. South Korea's Kospi lost 12 points to 2,495. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.19 cents U.S., virtually unchanged from Friday's close of 74.20 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk. I'm Lori Paris. Thank you very much, Lori. Let's get to Alex Smythe and the weather report. So, Alex, as I was walking into work this morning, I thought to myself, hmm, the grass is looking a little bit brown. Turns out uh, it hasn't rained in Toronto in a minute. 
Yeah, Dave, uh, in not just in Toronto, but a lot of uh, Ontario and parts of Quebec, it's been a bit of a dry spell uh, for Toronto specifically. It marks the 13th straight day without any precipitation within the city. And this long stretch is highly unusual for the month of September. And the trends are suggesting this is going to continue as we make our way into October. So this is the longest stretch this entire year of we have gone without rain in the area. And so there is a ridge of high pressure that is actually building over Ontario and into Quebec. And what that means is that ridge is going to bring conditions similar to what we've already been experiencing. Very calm so not a lot of weather activity sunshine not a lot of cloud cover and as an extension of that not a lot of rain so it means it's going to be very pleasant going forward but in terms of how little rain we've gotten so far this month in the month of september toronto has only had 9.4 millimeters of rain now to put that into context the average for toronto for september is 67 millimeters so we are only like about 18 percent of what the average should be and with this ridge that's coming into place there's not really much a chance that we're going to meet that average amount of rainfall so uh basically for the next few weeks into october expect more sunny conditions cloud-free conditions so you don't need to worry about packing an umbrella you can get out enjoy clear skies both during the day and at night dave very good thank you very much alex coming up after the break the little mermaid is making a splash on disney plus entertainment critic michael not michael mcneely it's amy amanti will offer up a review on the live action remake of the beloved animated classic. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Little Mermaid is making a splash on Disney+. Plus. It became one of the most viewed Disney movie premieres ever on the streaming service, which has only really existed for two years. But why worry about uh, context when sharing information like that? 16 million views in the first five days of streaming. You see, that is pretty notable. Before Amy Amanti stops by with a review, here's a clip from the trailer of The Little Mermaid. Stormy seas toss a sailing ship. Oh, hi, The wheel spins. The vessel crashes into rocks. Cargo bursts into flames. A man falls overboard as the burning ship founders. He sinks into the depths. Far below, a mermaid grabs him and pulls him upward. They breach the surface amid lightning, waves, and wreckage. Later, she lays him down on a beach. Rescuers approach. The mermaid slips back into the water and watches from afar. Disney 100. You broke the rules. You went to the above world. A man was drowning. I had to save him. This obsession with humans has to stop. I just want to know more about them. The mermaid swims up a long tunnel. Ariel, don't! Poor child. I can help you. 
You can't live in that world unless you become a human yourself. Is that even possible? That's <laughs> what I live for. The octopus woman reaches for Ariel. Entertainment critic Amy Amanti has a review of the live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. Hey, good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. Amy, before you talk about this movie, I would love to go back in time for a little bit of nostalgia. I wouldn't yes. say The Little Mermaid was my favorite of my childhood Disney films. It is one of uh, Under the Sea is one of my favorite songs of all time, though, in the Disney arsenal. Mm -hmm. How much of a fan were you of the original Little Mermaid? Yeah, I have to say it probably was one of my favorites of the, of the Disney movies that I've ever seen. So I probably had really high expectations of this one coming in. I was a big fan of the music and the story. Um, yeah, I was a big fan. I still am a big fan. In fact, I watched both of these films back to back because I wanted to I wanted to have a review. I watched the um, the the newly released uh uh, film first and then I revisited the uh, uh, the original animated one literally like I took a pee break and then I and I hit play on the <laughs> on the animated yeah I was like oh I'll just revisit both of them so some of the reviews have suggested the live action remake takes some liberties with the storytelling which actually kind of crushes the spirit of the original movie how do you feel the two films compared well you know I actually thought that the storytelling was fairly closely aligned uh, with the original animated film. Like I, they even borrow some of the original lines from the animated film. Um, there is, uh, I mean, there's a reference to um, underwater climate change, which I thought was kind of apropos. It's a very, very quick, short reference. Um, but I thought, I was like, oh, I was hoping they would go a little deeper in that as the mermaids are kind of cleaning up the ocean floor from a shipwreck debris, right? And I thought, oh, that's that's kind of apropos for where we are. Um, I think what I didn't like, and maybe they took a, a few liberties was, and I, I never like this, uh, is when they add original songs. And I never really, really like that. Disney does this a lot. Um, I see this a lot in anything. I mean, they uh, not 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 just Disney, but you know, when they did the uh, the movie version of Les Misérables, for example, they added in original songs, and it's like that's not necessary. But somehow they have to add in original songs, and I didn't I didn't like that. It it sort of took the yeah. the fun, <laughs> nostalgic, and magic away from me because it's like that doesn't fit. And they didn't include a song from the original. Uh, from the original that everybody loves and it wasn't in the uh, uh, what, live action. What, what did they leave out? They left out the Les Poissons. Les Poissons. How I love Les Poissons. Okay. <laughs> I know. Okay, yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's... It's a little one hard of, to do with live action, but... In general, that's one of the things I've noted with a few of the live action movies, that the music just hasn't been as good. Uh, that was definitely the case in the Lion King uh, live action yeah. remake a couple of years ago. Like, I, thought, I thought the music was terrible. Yeah. Same thing with the Aladdin remake a couple of years ago. I thought the music was yeah. really awful compared to what was just so bright and lovely and amazing yeah. in my youth although maybe I'm hearing that through nostalgic earmuffs. That, that's a possibility. What did you think of the live-action elements to the film? I 100% agree with you. And I think here's, here's this is my take on it, Dave. Right or wrong, this is my take on it, because I watched them back-to-back. -back. I think the acting is awful in this live-action movie. It's awful. <laughs> um, I think a part of this is because, you know, when you are viewing something through an animated lens, they make things larger than life. 
right? Like, the, you know, you have a crab with facial expressions for crying out loud, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is a part of it. And so they ask their voiceover artists to be larger than life. Now, when you have actual actors who are portraying a sea, a sea uh, mermaid or merman or, or uh, you know, a sea witch, those kinds of things, who I will say Melissa McCarthy was sort of the standout performance for me in this piece. Um, uh, and Melissa McCarthy played Ursula, right? The, uh, Ursula the, the evil, the evil octopus. Yeah. Um, when you when you ask actors to uh, you know embody these characters, they are uh, they are they are performing like uh, people actors do, not like animated characters do. Which are they're asked to be small. They're asked, you know, it's the difference between stage acting and TV acting and movie acting, which is they're asked to, because the camera picks up every little feature of the face. So you're asked to be not overly animated. You're asked to be kind of small. Um, And so I think that they should have gone big. They should have gone really, really big and really, really animated. And so that, and you can even hear it in the, in Titan's voice. Like when he, when he speaks in the clip, it's like, it just feels so, I mean, we're talking about creatures from under the water here and it feels so. You shouldn't have gone up to the surface. Yeah, 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 yeah. It just feels so blasé. Don't and don't it, ground my fantasy movie in reality, right? please. It, that's exactly what it feels like. And so the songs feel like that too. Um, and so I wanted sort of that Broadway, you know, spectacle of it, and it just wasn't there for me. Um, where it is there because when you have the animated version, you have the visual spectacle, and even if you're not seeing the visual spectacle, you get that ear candy piece of the visual spectacle, yeah. which we were missing here. What, what about what about some of the redeeming qualities uh, of the film? Because I think so far uh, you and I have landed on, oh boy, these Disney remakes aren't going well, and maybe this is a continuity of that. What about some redeeming qualities? I mean, the redeeming qualities for me is that they're trying to do something different in terms of bringing this kind of work to a modern day audience. I mean, they've they've casted the Little Mermaid. This was a big controversy too. And when you think about it, you know that the Little Mermaid is 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 casted with a a black actor actress right and so that's really great in terms of seeing representation on our stages i would say you know if we're skipping ahead to the audio description part i wasn't told that so you know you you're, you're invited into this world of of uh representation and i was left out of that as a blind right. viewer um so that you know really wasn't so great but you do with a live action piece have the opportunity to be able to um, have an enriching under the water experience but then on the flip side of that dave there's only so much that you can do with uh real sea creatures that um doesn't look hokey Mm. Whereas with animation, uh, you can do stuff that looks magical, right? Yep. <laughs> As opposed yep. to, you know, having real sea stars uh, and trying to make them do musical numbers that, <laughs> anyway. So, I mean, they really tried to to do some stuff here that I think was unique. But um, I, for me, I would say that that most of that missed yeah, I, I would suggest in general here, Amy, that this film has not been particularly well received. I know Disney right now is spinning this as, oh, 16 million viewers on our streaming service yeah. in the first five days. This is so great. Except that it was largely a box office failure following a string of box office failures when it was released in theaters. So I think to sort of imply like, oh, a lot of people are pressing play on our streaming service for a heavily advertised piece of intellectual property. Like, it's like like that is total corporate spin in the way that's being framed about a movie that I don't know I'm kind of getting the impression that you're not recommending people press play on. Well, I think if you're going to watch something, you should just go back and hit play on the original version. The audio description even for the original version is way better 
Uh, and we're talking about audio, you know, like it's way better. It's just way, way, way better um, for many reasons. But it just, like, uh, I just was so surprised that I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but a lot of this just feels very, uh, very aligned with capitalism. Right, like we take something and we remake it for the sake of remaking it, and we don't think about the who, the why, the you know why we're doing yeah. this. Yeah. We just do it because it was really popular at one time, and you know it's been thirty years since we've done it, and so people liked it thirty years ago. Let's you know just because we have the ability to do it doesn't mean we should do it, and maybe we need to focus on new original stories. But it's just too easy to remake something. Yeah. Um, that was popular at one time and hope that it'll be popular again. And they have yet to do a really good job on one of these remakes. The Beauty and the Beast yeah. was maybe okay. Aladdin was maybe okay. The Lion King was really bad. Uh, what was the one they dropped during the pandemic that also just completely flopped? I'm, I'm forgetting the name. It was one of the smaller films from the, from the 1990s. And now this one as well. Like, it's just a string right now of Disney trying to go back to the well with this over and over and over yeah. again. And it's not working. Like, like, like maybe like put your resources elsewhere guys yeah and i i always it's so interesting for me because i always have the best of hopes i always think oh that could be really interesting and then you know you watch it and you go oh shoot i'm so disappointed yeah yeah um so you know i i watched this movie it was two hours of like oh that's disappointing oh yeah. i missed that song <laughs> yeah. oh this original ah. thing sucks why did they do that and then i was like i'm gonna watch the original one and all oh, i just had a smile pasted on my face my cheeks hurt and i was like why yeah. did i even that other one. Like, this, yeah. was, this was like 65 minutes of pure joy. <laughs> I paid I paid hard-earned Canadian currency to go see uh, The Lion King in uh, 2019. And when Beyonce and uh, and uh, uh, Donald Glover were singing Can You Feel the Love Tonight? And it like just was off key and didn't work. Oh. I'm like, what are we doing here? Beyonce and Donald Glover are so talented. How do you mess this up? But How they, do you mess this up? Yeah. How do you mess this up? Amy, how do they mess this up? Amy, have a great day. You yeah. never mess this up. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Don't waste your hard-earned dollars on this one. But, or your hard-earned time hitting just stream on play on the service you've already paid for. That's sure. entertainment critic Amy Amanti with a review of the live-action remake of The Little Mermaid. Again, you can find that film on Disney+. Plus. In a moment, John Lepke stops by for the entertainment report. But first, Fortnite players, video gamers are getting some money back. Mike Dubusky has the story in Tech Trends. The Federal Trade Commission is beginning the process of notifying more than 37 million people who may be entitled to compensation as part of a legal settlement with Epic Games, the maker of Fortnite. FTC Chair Lena Khan says that company tricked Fortnite players into unintended in-game purchases. Even when a user was just looking to wake the game back up after it had gone into sleep mode, they could be charged with all sorts of fees that they didn't intend to make. And FTC Staff attorney James Doty says the company also made it difficult to get refunded. Originally, uh, the refund button was placed in a location where users were likely to find it. And when too many people saw the button and asked for refunds, the company moved it so people would not get their money back. Epic says it has since implemented additional safeguards. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike, from the world of technology over to the world of entertainment. John Lepke, there is uh, some at least positive news brewing here when it comes to the Hollywood writers' strike. 
There is. So over the weekend, and it was fairly late breaking over the weekend, uh, the WGA has come to a tentative agreement. This hasn't been uh, ratified as the wording would be, but it looks like we are likely to see writers back in rooms very, very soon. John, I'm I'm curious what you think of the prospects are here, maybe some lessons that can be learned. It's a little bit strange because actors are still on strike, so it's not as if the wheels of Hollywood are going to be right back into motion. But what solidarity lessons do you think might come to the forefront here from the writers that really have buckled down hard here, like hardcore solidarity for about five months? I think what's really interesting is the solidarity across creative sectors. We didn't see the level of uh, the term would be scabbing that we often see in other sectors or, you know, people, we had some, you know, Drew Barrymore TV show stuff, um, but we didn't have nearly as much. And I think it's because the WGA and very shortly after the actors, SAG-ACTRA also um, uh, provided that solidarity on the front line and we're very visible about it in a way that perhaps as you were talking about earlier in the show um automakers are are less so Mm. Yeah, I, I do think you mentioned the Drew Barrymore example where she said, hey, I'm going to bring my talk show back and was eventually talked out of it. Same thing with Bill Maher a couple of weeks ago. He wanted to bring his talk show back and basically his colleagues in the industry said, hey, man, this, this is bigger than you. Like, I know you want to sound off or you don't necessarily want to stay in solidarity with the union here. But frankly, there, there's going to be consequences if you do. It was the same thing with Dancing with the Stars last week. You've seen solidarity, solidarity, solidarity across the board. And it's been uh, it's been pretty darn impressive. OK, John. Let's go to a little bit of fun in the world of entertainment and where sports and entertainment intersects. It has been reported that Usher is confirmed as the Super Bowl's halftime performer in February of 2024. John, I'm I can kind of dig it. I can kind of dig it, but I'm not all the way sure Usher is the right choice for the halftime show. Yeah, I, I you know, the time this is very unhelpful for listeners, but the time that I get excited about the halftime show is about a week before. I know they announce it now, but honestly, it takes until the last week of January before I'm like, oh, who's doing the show and should I get excited? Um, I'm, I'm the same with the Grey Cup and the same with all of these big sporting events that that try to pump up their uh their halftime performance. And, but it's going to be really interesting to see how Usher lives up to previous years. And because the theme of the show today is labor today in this first hour, it seems, you know, oftentimes, uh, and I believe this is still true, the Super Bowl performers aren't necessarily paid they are to not, perform. They are not. It's the other way around. They pay for the right to perform. Which feels, um, uh, which feels odd, <laughs> quite frankly, um, given what you know, these stars can command. And and I know they're using it as an avenue to promote their latest project or to renew their fame or um, as the show a few years ago was really, you know, how many stars can we throw at this stage? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know these performers don't need the money per se at this point, but um, it is interesting from a labor perspective to see that, that, that they don't get paid even on that biggest stage where, you know, Super Bowl ad slots are being, you know, multiple 
multiple millions. Yeah, I, I just think the pick is a little uninspired. Usher is probably not where he was about 15 or 20 years ago in terms of his place, like, in the music industry. I also think if you really get down to his biggest hits, the only real, like, high-energy slapper that he has is Yeah, although if it's an opportunity to get ludicrous on stage during the Super Bowl halftime show, <laughs> I'm very excited about that. But I, I just don't see it as the most, like, energized or exciting choice. Like, Rihanna still has a real important place in modern culture. Uh, the year before with like Eminem and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and 50 Cent and and uh, and Kendrick Lamar, like that is really relevant. I just don't know how relevant Usher is. Like it almost feels closer to the Maroon 5 selection from 2019 and away from some mm -hmm. of the progress that has been made in the last couple of years since uh, Jay-Z took over the halftime show production. I mean, I certainly feel that I'm getting older when I see the announcement of Usher and think, oh, they're they're looking to um, <laughs> identify with an older demographic, uh, even though the older demographic is like, 30 up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's a meme that goes around that says there are stages of life that go, wow, this radio station is playing my favorite song. Wow, this bar is playing my favorite song. Wow, this grocery store is playing my favorite song. Uh, John, thank you for this. You've done a great job filling in on entertainment today. No time for Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. I might save that for Brock Richardson in the next hour. Yeah. That's okay. He can he can take that and and uh, go with it. That is John Lepke filling in for Amanda Shikarchi at the AMI Entertainment Desk. Coming up after the break, I mentioned Brock Richardson. Lots of uh, football to round up from yesterday, including Taylor Swift attending the Kansas City Chiefs game, sitting next to tight end Travis Kelsey's mom, as rumors of them dating. Not Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey's mom, but rumors of Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey dating continue to go to the forefront. Oh boy, will Brock and I dabble into the world of entertainment gossip? Will it be earnest football chat? There's only one way to find out. Stay right there. Now with Dave Brown, we'll be right back. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, September the 25th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, WordPress Accessibility Day is September the 27th. Stephen Scott gives you a preview of what's to come. And 299 Queen Street West is a film all about the history of much music. It's kicking off its Canadian tour. Andrika Delanerol attended a premiere over the weekend and will share her thoughts on the documentary film. But the hour begins with the regional news update. And it starts in Ontario. Ontario's provincial politicians return to Queen's Park today. All three opposition leaders are expressing their priorities heading into the fall session. NDP leader Merritt Stiles still has lingering questions about the Greenbelt development plan. I can assure you we are going to be using this opportunity uh, to get more answers because uh, Ford and his conservative government uh, have a lot to answer for. Uh, we have... Uh, every intention of continuing to hold them to account. 
Green Party leader Mike Schreiner wants more answers about ethics and accountability. I think there's huge questions around the Members Integrity Act, the lobby registry. How the heck could cabinet literally remove permanent protections on prime farmland and forest and wetlands with what appears to be like no cabinet accountability? Interim leader John Frazier has a whole list of goals heading into the session. It may take some time. And while we're doing that over that time, it is really important for us to focus on the things that are important to Ontarians, like housing, like healthcare, like education, like the environment. We have to keep doing that. I think we'll be able to walk and chew gum. Over to the province of Quebec, Montreal police say a man has died and two others were injured after a building partially collapsed over the weekend. Lisa Laporte has more. Police and Quebec's Workers' Health and Safety Commission are investigating after firefighters discovered the body of the man last night in the rubble of the building in the city's north end. Authorities say a concrete slab of the ground floor of the building collapsed yesterday afternoon in an area where work was possibly underway. Montreal Fire Department Section Chief Marie-Yves Beausoleil says while the front of the building was uninhabited due to a previous fire, renovations may have been taken taking place as building materials were found at the site. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press. And over to the Atlantic, the union that represents thousands of healthcare administrators in Nova Scotia has invited its members to join a lunch hour protest today. The demonstrations outside 11 hospitals are meant to draw attention to the fact that these workers' contracts expired almost three years ago. The union also says the administrators are among the lowest paid healthcare workers in Atlantic Canada. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for Sports Chat. Brock, let's get this out of the way right off the top. You watched some awful football yesterday due to the menu provided to you by Canadian cable providers. The only interesting thing in the Kansas City Chiefs 41-10 throttling of the Chicago Bears was Taylor Swift hanging out to Travis Kelsey's mom in the press box. Travis Kelsey, the tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs. There are reports that Swift and Kelsey are dating Brock. That's the only newsworthy item to come out of that gosh awful football game yeah and you know what else i thought was kind of newsworthy was the fact that the reason he kind of got to know taylor swift travis kelsey was because he tried to get backstage in one of her tours and that's how that happened so pays to be travis kelsey and who he is and to get with taylor swift but yeah that was the only interesting thing in that game yesterday alex i tried i tried on friday to sell this game and it fell flat for your show Chicago Bears, I'm very sorry, but yeah. it just it was awful. So I, even even my bills was not even like it was like okay, this is this is under control. Like there was just nothing intriguing for me on cable. The zone will be my friend moving forward because this is just sad what I'm being able to watch on conventional cable yeah so you mentioned uh the buffalo bills who absolutely ran through the washington commanders what was the final there 35 3 38 3 37 37 3 i know a lot of people today are talking about your buffalo bills uh in glowing terms brock i still saw a couple flaws in an offense that is, is struggling to protect the ball and struggling to convert opportunities i know 37 3 like how many criticisms can you offer a team but i actually thought their performance was pretty lackluster until late in the game 
Do you know what? The real test is going to come uh, this coming week, I believe, is when they play the Miami Dolphins. And that, for me, is going to be who are you, what are you? Because, yeah, I, I, I mean, you can't criticize much of a 37-3 victory, but there's a lot going on here. And I want to see them against, you know, some but some team that, you know, is playing really well. And, yeah. and speaking of Miami, winning, you know, 70-20 to 20 yesterday, having their way with Denver, that's going to be their real test of the season coming. Yeah, that, uh, that that's the most points scored in an NFL game since 1966 by my Miami Dolphins with their 70-20 to 20 win uh, yesterday. I actually turned that game off. It, it was too much joy. It was too much. I wasn't used to that kind of joy watching the Miami Dolphins. I had to go watch other miserable teams uh, be miserable to make me feel mm-hmm. like it was a real football Sunday. So, Brock, I've got some uh, power rankings here from my uh, week three uh, recap observations. Number one, I've created the utter panic ranking the utter panic tier and that is Chicago Bears and the Denver Broncos the Bears are in absolute humiliation their defensive coordinator is getting investigated by the FBI they're raiding his house Uh, supplies are going missing there's sting operations the quarterback's unhappy with the head coach it's uh, it's a mess in Chicago a real mess the only uh, glowing light here is they have uh, a bunch of draft capital going into this coming draft so I'm going to close the books and cross off the Chicago Bears right off the top. I'm also going to put the Denver Broncos in the utter panic division. The utter panic division is where the Denver Broncos go. They've started their season 0-3. They had a couple close games against bad teams to start the year, and they played a good team yesterday, and they got blown off the field. Things are not good for the Denver Broncos. Brock, the deeply disappointed tier, the I'm very disappointed in you. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. That's the Jacksonville Jaguars, who lost a game to the Houston Texans yesterday at home and it wasn't even close 37 17 Brock this Jacksonville Jaguars team was supposed to waltz their way to a division title in the AFC South and they have looked bad in all three games they've played this year they were lucky to get a win in the first week against Indianapolis Jacksonville Jaguars about to head over to London for two straight games in England look out man this could get real ugly real fast in Jacksonville hiccups Brock Let's talk about hiccups. The Baltimore Ravens losing to the Indianapolis Colts in just humiliating fashion in a rainstorm, uh, going up against Indianapolis' backup quarterback, missing field goals, turning the ball over, failing to convert first downs. It might just be a hiccup, but I don't know. That was a big one. The other one is the Dallas Cowboys losing to the lowly Arizona Cardinals. Again, a team that seemed to be sleepwalking through two or three quarters and then could not turn it on when they had to. Brock, your reaction to the Ravens or the Cowboys? Uh, The Cowboys. I was sitting yesterday with a Cowboys fan who was very, very angry. There was no disappointment. There was no, it was anger. He was like, what is happening? What is going, like, there is severe anger happening in the Dallas Cowboys world if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan. And Dave, honestly, I'd rather be anywhere else but in your disappointed category. When my parents told me they were disappointed in me, oh, I that just be mad at me. Don't be disappointed. So, Jacksonville, I feel sorry for you that you're in Dave's uh, uh, disappointed category. My parents are. My parents still express their disappointment with me on the regular. <laughs> they tell me I could do better. Uh, Brock, let's go for one more team here. Instead of the utter joys or the you know cautious optimisms, I want to talk about an upward trending team, and that's the Cleveland Browns, who start the season two and one, a defensive 
stat to share with you, Brock Richardson, as uh, they held the Tennessee Titans to three points yesterday. That's not the most impressive part. They held the Tennessee Titans to four first downs throughout the entire game. Brock, that is a shockingly no, low number in an NFL game to be a professional football team and be held to four first downs across four quarters of football. They basically had them in a position where they did nothing. The Cleveland Browns defense has held teams to under 10 first downs in all three of their first games of the season. There are still some questions about that offense and certainly the season-ending injury to their star running back Nick Chubb uh, gave some headaches to Cleveland this week. But Brock, this defense is legit emit elite Cleveland Browns. I don't know if their offense can carry them to a Super Bowl. They're also the Cleveland Browns, so they're bound to shoot themselves in the foot somewhere along the way here. <laughs> but that defense is fierce. It might be the best in the league. I would say right now they're in the conversation with San Francisco and maybe Dallas, but I got questions about Dallas after yesterday. Cleveland Browns, Brock Richardson, look out. This team is on the upward trend right now. I would think that Four first downs, and quick math, that's one first down per quarter if you break this down. Oof. But I, I would think that that would be close to the lowest number of first downs ever because, like, that's 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 low, man. Like, that, that's not a good output. But, hey, they say when you have good defense, defense wins championships, and they, the Cleveland Browns clearly have that, and they're doing it. But, yeah, there are always some questions, and it is the Cleveland Browns. I one Bob <laughs> yeah. McCowan who, who who used to host uh, drive time, you know, the Cleveland Browns. So they'll find a way to screw this up somehow. But that's a good set to hold your hat on. For oh, now. man, you you build around defense. Oof, you can go a lot of places. And that defense looks fierce right now. Fierce, fierce, fierce. Brock, doubleheader on a Monday night for Monday Night Football. Not just one Monday Night Football game, two weeks in a row, you get a doubleheader. And I've got to say, Brock, both these games are compelling in their own way. The undefeated Philadelphia Eagles visit the undefeated Tampa Bay Buccaneers at 7.15 p.m. Eastern time. And then the uh, somewhat disappointing Los Angeles Rams and very disappointing Cincinnati Bengals uh, renew acquaintances at 8.15 p.m. Eastern time. Brock, I've got to say, there are some serious questions tonight. Like, there are teams that can be added to my tiers based on the outcomes of these games. And that Philly-Tampa game, that's a really real measuring stick for both those teams yes it is and i can say very happily both of those are on conventional cable so we're good tonight in the brock richardson household but it, yeah both of these games are are gonna be uh, gonna be good and i will be flipping back and forth my 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 thumb will be sore by the end of the evening but that's that's how we're gonna roll tonight brock i actually think that they should do this more football is better when there's two games going on at once in case you get a stinker like last night's primetime game the pittsburgh steelers and the las vegas raiders was a close enough game it was entertaining because it was close but it was also just two teams that really play constipated offense like really constipated offense so it's nice when you can have two to do a little flip ski you know what i'm saying yeah, oh, I for sure, and I mean, look at the first uh, evening game with the Cowboys and the Giants the first week. I mean, that was a god awful start to the evening evening you know session for the NFL. And once that those games get out of control, you do want something to flip over to. And there's not much going on in the early part of 
tonight uh, that's not considered preseason hockey. Uh, but, you know, it, it's good to have something to flip yeah. to. I love it. I like a little channel surfing. That's what sports. That's what sports fandom is all about. Uh, impulse control. Uh, Brock works th- the callus <laughs> on my thumb. You know. It's yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, Brock. Thanks for this, buddy. Got to get out of here. Have a great day. No problem. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. WordPress Accessibility Day is September the twenty seventh. Stephen Scott gives you the preview of what's to come. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Wednesday is WordPress Accessibility Day, a day to promote accessibility and best practices on WordPress websites. So WordPress, you might be familiar with the name, but just in case, it's a management system that facilitates creating and managing a website. In fact, according to Color Lab, 810 million websites use the WordPress platform That's 43% of websites on the internet. Stephen Scott has some thoughts on this. Stephen is one of the hosts of Double Tap, which you can find daily, noon Eastern time, on AMI-audio. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Dave. How are you? Stephen, I am great. I uh, built a website using WordPress years and years and years and years ago. I have no idea what its current status is, but I didn't I didn't realize that WordPress is this prominent in the web design world. Why is it so dominant? Well, I'm with you on this. Uh, I didn't realize it had such an impact in the world of websites. I just thought it was a place people would go and they would build a blog, they would build a site, and that was it. But of course, since the rise of e-commerce and more and more online shops and more people, more individuals choosing to build their own websites for e-commerce, it's actually become very popular. But of course, it all starts back at the days when the way to design a website was actually quite convoluted. And then these WYSIWYG editors came around, which is basically an acronym that means what you see is what you get. And you could then start to build a website visually. And I remember using Microsoft Front Page back in the day to create my first website. Oh, man. And yeah, that's taking us back, right? And, um, you know, there was all these other develop these kind of equivalents starting to develop. But WordPress came along, and because the entire thing could be self-hosted, you could have you know, all of it on your own computer and you could build your website, you could run your website from your own system. It meant it was much easier to manage and use. And of course, from our perspective, it became very accessible for, for blind people as well, which was great. Yeah, Stephen, I mentioned that I'd built a WordPress website in 2010. I've also used the uh, Weebly uh, format back in uh, 2014 when I mm-hmm. launched a podcast. Back in the day, like you mentioned Microsoft Front Page. For me, it was GeoCities and Angel Fire. I was building websites uh, uh, yes. back in the late 90s, and I can assure you they were not accessible because I don't think companies were even thinking about that back then. I know this is a little bit of an unfair question, but how would you evaluate accessibility on the WordPress, WordPress platform? So WordPress is an interesting one because a lot of it is down to the type of theme you use for your website. Now, typically people think that means it has to be simple. There have to be few images. It can't be well designed, can't look nice, be sexy. It's not true. You can have all that, but it can be accessible. Ultimately, 
the core components to making a website accessible are making sure buttons are labeled, making sure that at the top of a paragraph, if you've got a heading, it's actually formatted as a heading. Tables are labeled properly. You know, there's lots of things you can do to make sure a website is accessible. Now, WordPress has done a lot of work to try and encourage developers and encourage website owners to think about accessibility. It has implemented those standards, not just in the front end, but more importantly, in the back end. So the creation of a website is accessible. Mm. That is something that we haven't had a lot of either in other spaces. I mean, even today, you go to work at a company and you have an internal system to deal with. Yeah, the front end, the website, you know, for the company might be fully accessible, fully inclusive. The back end, though, maybe not so. So someone yeah. who's blind, who's using a screen reader, can't navigate that. But WordPress allowed you to be able to create, but also view the content accessibly. Yeah, to put that in, in sort of different terms, Stephen, it's changing the way in which they think about a person with a disability from simply being a consumer to saying you can also be a designer or a developer, right? And and I, I know that sounds kind of like a wishy-washy, intangible concept, but that has real practical, real-world implications. Oh, massively. And actually, it's really important people understand that. How many times have we fought this argument on every single level? We always say the same thing, don't we? We are consumers too, but we're also creators too. And we can make our own content. We can produce our own content. And that can be anything. I have a friend who makes soap. She's the blind soap maker. That's what she does. And, you know, why not, right? And she can sell that online because she is able to build a WordPress website. She's able to use that website to sell her products and make money from them. And that is fantastic. That is what it's all about. You know, it's, it's about being able to do something independently without having to always get the help in with the working eyes. Stephen, one of the other aspects of this, and of course, it's a talk show in 2023, so if we don't include AI in a segment, we have done a great <laughs> injustice to the technological world and the audience mm -hmm. at home, but there is a little bit of rumbling and speculation that AI is something that can be used to correct accessibility issues or mm -hmm. do accessibility checks on websites. I know uh, one of our contributors, Denis Boudreau of Inclusive Communication, says, no, no, guys, like there's some prospect here, but we can't be trusting the robots to do this. What do you imagine the prospect of AI could be in regards to either doing accessible design or writing accessible code or doing accessibility checks on the web? Okay, so I think there's two sides to this. I think there's the website accessibility in itself, and there's absolutely... I would share the view that it's not something we should leave to the robots. We've tried to do this before. It failed miserably. It doesn't work. You cannot circumvent accessibility. You have to build it in. And that is as simple as, in, in some cases anyway, of labeling buttons. I go through apps all the time with unlabeled buttons. I'm not double tapping on that because I don't know what it is. Yeah. That could be erase my iPhone button. I'm not doing that. So you've got to think about this, the, the very basics. And of course, the, the web content accessibility guidelines, which have just been updated, and it's a very big and laborious document, but it's very important for developers to even know it exists because that sets the standards for developers. Now, of course, there's another side to this, AI in itself, actually enabling us as consumers to be able to access the web more easily. And the question we've been sharing on our show, basically following Microsoft's big announcement of what's coming up tomorrow, their big update on Windows 11 mm. that will be uh, shipping tomorrow. I say shipping, of course, you don't go and buy a CD from the store in a box anymore. It just comes over the air, right, onto your computer. But 
you know, with that big update comes Copilot. And what that enables you to do is, let's say, for example, I want to buy a yellow toaster and I'd like to spend around $40. Um, can you suggest one for me? It will go off and it will actually search the web, come back with the options in a nice chat window, and even go further than that. It can even integrate with the site. And I could say, hey, just, you know what, add it to my basket and use my card ending one, two, three to make the payment. Now, we're not quite there with that part of it yet, but there's no Stevens reason why we can't get there. got one, two, three. Uh, CVB number on that, Stephen? <laughs> I'm just curious here. A three, two, one. A three, um, two, one, okay. But, <laughs> but look, if you can get to that point then life gets rather interesting because then what you you ask yourself is, do we then not need the developers to create accessible websites because the AI can circumvent the accessibility that way yeah. and actually make it easier for us? That's a big debate to have, but there's two sides to it. It, it, again, it speaks to that sort of uh, idea of passing the buck off to the robots being like, this accessibility thing is too hard for us humans. Let, let's let the technology do it itself rather than, you know, make it a but, priority but, but hang internally. Up, but the thing is, though, you've you got to think about the consumer in this, right? So the person who just wants to buy the yellow toaster and doesn't really want to spend the rest of their life arrowing up and down through our website, button, 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 trying to find that particular toaster in amongst 8 million other results, yeah. including sponsored ads and sponsored this and cookie settings and all the rest. <laughs> if you want to get past all that and just get to the content, which, by the way, is what everyone else does visually with a mouse mm -hmm. or their finger on a screen, then why not? Why shouldn't we be able to do that? And if AI can help us do that, why not? Oh, Stephen, you're so smart. I always enjoy talking to you. Uh, Stephen, no time to talk about some new features at Amazon. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll put that in our pocket and get to it a little bit later in the week. But for okay. now, sir, I wish you a lovely day. And you, Dave. Have a great day. That is Stephen Scott, one of the co-hosts of Double Tap. You can find that show daily, noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. I am always delighted when it pumps through the speakers into my office. I love listening to Stephen and Sean. Coming up after the break, Alex Smythe takes you to fantasy land. You won the lottery. What does building your dream home look like? Oh boy, Alex Smythe knows how to get my juices flowing on a Monday. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back it's now with dave brown on ami tv there is a housing crisis going on right now in canada it's really expensive to live anywhere but alex smythe you want to change the perspective on this and take us over to fantasy land and thank you for that yeah dave so first we'll start with the vegetables we'll, oh. we'll get to the official news report we'll, we'll start with the fact that the demands for rentals and renting in Canada is getting higher and higher and more expensive. Rentals.ca's Guancomo Lattice says that there isn't really any relief set to come in sight. We're seeing such high population growth, inflation's out of control, and the production on new housing is so low. When you have that, you're going to get these prices the way they are, and you're going to demand the way they are. So what this does is create such a burden on this rental housing market that even though we're out of the summer rental season, there's so much demand that it's going to continue like this until the fall and into the winter. 
And unfortunately, that is a very disheartening report on the state <laughs> of rentals and the cost of living in Canada. But I don't want to focus on that. It's a Monday. I want to start positive, Dave. You know, I want to I want to look to a bright future. Another thing in, of uh, news in the uh, in the sphere is the fact that Lotto 649, they have a record setting $68 million draw set for this Wednesday. Ooh, Somebody ooh. is going to win the big money. Well, now, not not, ne not, ne not necessarily. Nobody won on nobody won on Saturday. Yes, but the gold ball. This is the final gold ball, so someone has to win oh. this big oh, jackpot. My. This is oh, the dear. final draw. Oh wow! Yes, so somebody's walking away with this money. So let's say it is one of us here on the round table. You just won sixty-eight million dollars. Now you get to design and build your very own dream home. What is that going to look like? Nisreen, let's start with you. You're designing your own dream home. What's it looking like? I'm saying all high tech. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be, I'm going to have one closet for my shoes, one room for my clothes, one room for my purses, and, um, you know, just a couple of rooms scattered. If anybody wants a guest bed, I'll have that ready for them too. Uh, yeah, I... The more rooms, the better for all my clothes and stuff. Nazreen, give me a number here. Come on, I'm going to pin you down here. We're talking like 12 bedrooms, uh, 14 bathrooms, not tw push 20 it. bedrooms, 15 bathrooms. Come on, what's going on here? No, I honestly, I would just say four or five bedrooms uh, maximum. And then if I have that extra money, I would put that money on another house somewhere else. Okay, we're talking about cottage life or that beach house life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, okay, that, that's not a bad mojo dojo casa house right there. That's not too bad by Nazreen. Alex, what about you? What's, what's going into your dream home? Well, I was thinking about this the other day. Like one uh, issue I always find is some, some of these massive dream homes are just way too big. You know, 7,000 square feet, 8,000, mm -hmm. 10, 12,000 square feet. Way too big. I feel I'd never get that space. I, I would like something, you know, maybe three to 5,000 square feet. Still a very large home, but more manageable. More manageable in the day-to-day. -day. I would love a home theater. I like just something designed yes. for entertainment. Big screen projector, those laid out chairs and sofas. I love a a designed gaming space board games the nice board game table a nice open kitchen and entertainment it's all about entertaining it's all about fun and look and, at mr look know, at mr probably... look at mr popular over here with all his friends I, I i would have to make some friends i don't have that many friends that are reliable to come over so dave i would probably be inviting you and misery <laughs> and you over as well for some some game nights but that would definitely be the focus and in terms of like bedrooms maybe about four bedrooms you know you got a couple for yourselves and then uh, some spare ones because you want people to stay over you mm -hmm. want people to come and enjoy themselves that's what i want in my dream home dave so i'm, I'm going to apply a little bit of my own uh, albinism and preferences here someone who is light sensitive i would actually like a really well-designed, well-developed, finished basement. Like, listen, main floor, nice kitchen, good sitting room, windows, you know, all, all that good stuff that people enjoy, right? Modern stuff like Nazreen's talking about, viewing rooms like you're talking about. But I want to create a space in the basement that has windows. Like, I still want there to be views, 
but maybe the windows are like a little bit tinted or I've got like a really effective blind system to uh, keep a lot of light out so I can put a nice TV down there, a lot of lounging chairs, big open rounded spaces so it's easy to socialize while you're also taking in some of this uh, fun sporting content that I would enjoy. A nice bar as well would be cool. I'm also one of these uh, suckers who would love a home gym. I think if I could have a proper home gym, maybe in my basement, maybe on the main floor, I don't know. But I think having a home gym would be really, really nice. I'm thinking a sauna and a steam room. Like, I want to create, essentially, a health club in my basement. Yes. I want one half of my basement to be a gluttony club where mm -hmm. there's, like, bars and chairs and TVs and fridges and carbohydrates. And then there's going to be, like, a row of bathrooms. And then on the other side, it's going to be, like, a gym and a sauna and a hot tub and, like, all that kind of good stuff. And, yeah, I, th I think that's kind of what I'd be going for. So nicely beautiful, developed, man cave kind of basement. Let's talk about location here because I would like to build one of these rectangular-ish homes that overlooks some kind of bluff or mountains or ocean to make this totally effective for me. So I'm probably looking at the West Coast or something lakeside in Huron County or in the Laurentians in Quebec. Nazreen, where are you putting your uh, Mojo Dojo Casa House? So I was thinking realistic side. Um, I would stay in the GTA just because I feel oh, like I would gosh. live in. Ugh. I know, I know, I know what you're saying. And I don't know how much $68 million is going to take us here. Two bedroom uh, condo. But... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm just thinking about, you know, I still, you know, with that kind of money, I don't care. I'm going to still work. I'm going to still do my thing. Oh, so get out of here. You're still going to work. $68 million. If I win $68 million on Wednesday night, y'all will never hear from me ever again. I am disappearing into thin air as if Thanos snapped his fingers in the <laughs> Avengers. But but I see what you're saying about the views. I really would love a really nice view from my dream home. Yeah, I want to see if I can find a way to get a view, but also still live in the city where I can get Uber Eats. You know, like I'm still a creature comfort kind of person. And even if I can't afford a driver, I don't want to deal with driving 90 minutes to get anywhere. So it's, it's a complicated mix that I've got to deal with here. Alex, in your fantasy land, where is your land in fantasy land? I, I think I'm kind of siding with Nazreen. The GTA has so many like small benefits that we just never really think about oh, like even because if i'm winning 68 million dave i'm going to be traveling the world constantly and toronto uh international pearson international airport is the best connected airport in canada alex so i would spend I'm, six all 68 million of my yeah. dollars not to go through pearson <laughs> i know and you've spoken publicly <laughs> multiple times about your dis, uh, dislike for pearson but I think the convenience of that, it outweighs the discomfort that I'd feel. I'd, I'd be going first class, obviously. Fly private, so, fly private man. Fly class. private to a hub. Potentially, or just get like, you know, some, some other workarounds. But I like the idea of being in and around the city. So probably somewhere a little bit outside of that downtown core, somewhere still easy enough to get to but a bit more space, maybe a bit more greenery, maybe some some of these like nicer areas in and around the Hamilton, Burlington area where you're a bit in the country, but still can be in 10 minutes or you're in town. 
It's an area I'm used to. You guys are so Southern Ontarian centric. It's, it, it just gets to me every every time. Okay, what about accessibility features? I do think I mentioned uh, the notion of either a great blind system or tinted windows in my basement that lets you still use them as a window but lowers the amount of sunlight that I'm going to get on any given day. That's a personal accessibility preference for me. I think that I would love to build some kind of small elevator to get people from my main floor down to my basement if, if that needs to happen. But I also think the notion of um, uh, what do they call it when there's when like a no gradient entrance, where a lot mm -hmm. of what I would design in my place would be limited to limited to no steps at all throughout the place, unless it's actually a staircase to get from upstairs or downstairs. And as I mentioned, there'd be an elevator to get you from up or down. So I think that I think that I would be thinking a lot about that universal design concept, which is limited instruction obstruction and wide open space. So Alex, not necessarily an accessibility feature by definition but the universal universal design concepts that are accessibility yeah dave i i would echo a lot of those things i would love like you know if uh, if it's multiple floors and stuff i would be looking at something like an elevator i, would, I like the idea of not having steps to get in and out of the house uh another feature too and you mentioned windows some uh, really fascinating like modern tech I've seen is windows that you can change the tinting. Oh. Like you can control the amount of light. So you can you can adjust it on the fly. I think that would be really fascinating that you can determine, well, it's really bright out. I don't want that much sunlight coming in. I'm gonna put it down like tinting at 100%. So then it basically blocks it out or 60%, something like that. I also like the idea of having a bright high contrast countertops and surfaces so like a white or near white like kitchen countertop so i can see everything when i'm preparing in the kitchen or if i'm in like a living room or on a bar or something like that it's going to be bright and in high contrast i can see that you can still have fun with colors in other areas but i like the countertops and surfaces to be bright and long. nice i like that nazreen last word goes to you what are accessibility features that you're thinking about Alex, I'm with you on the white countertops. I feel like that's what I was looking for when we were looking for a condo, uh, just to make it clear, just to make it, you know, very accessible for me as well. Uh, another thing that I was thinking about is everything voiceover. Um, everything I touch in the kitchen, just, you know, hearing it back just tells me, okay, I put this temperature up on the oven. I did this, I did that. I think that's very helpful. Last thing I'm going to include is a talking closet scans my outfits oh, yeah. tells me what color what Ooh. design what this outfit is description and everything like that okay good set it up i like that um, that's what i want that's yeah. good that's good <laughs> brainstorming good thinking so when one of us wins on wednesday uh we're all getting out of this heck hole together and we can all live in each other's uh beautiful homes nizreen not yeah nizreen alex thank you guys both have a great day that's Nazreen Abdelmajid and Alex Smythe coming up after the break. There's a documentary all about the history of much music. It's called 299 Queen Street West. It's kicked off its Canadian tour. And Drinking Delanerol was at one of the premieres and has thoughts on the documentary. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There's a new documentary that explores the evolution and development of much music. 
the nation's music station. 299 Queen Street West had its Canadian premiere in Toronto last Friday. Of course it did. Everything needs to happen in Toronto. And of course, when they say 299 Queen Street West, that was the reference of much reference to Much Music's headquarters. Senior producer Andrika Delanerol took in the screening, hobnobbing with the power brokers, and has a review of the doc. Hey, good morning, Andrika. Good morning, Dave. Yes, I did. It was a Canadian premiere, so it was pretty exciting. Yeah, look at you uh, hanging out with the power brokers on Friday. Well done. Right in the very back row, too. Right where we belong, the crap of the king pile. Oh, my exactly. gosh. <laughs> so, what did you, so I know you have a lot of memories about much music. So do I. But what did you enjoy about the documentary? So this documentary was by uh, Sean Menard, and he did a really interesting um, editorial decision here. What he did was uh, he used purely archival footage, and he did interview former staff and VJs, but instead of showing them on screen, he only used voiceover. So it was multiple voices narrating the story of, uh, as you said, the development and growth of the nation's station um and honestly watching it was so interesting because not only was it nostalgic but you know you you're you feel like you're watching history as it's being made yeah and in the archival footage like these vjs and these staff members don't even i don't even think they knew what they were doing in that moment i don't think they realized that they were literally building history uh throughout this documentary and it was so fascinating to see that um i think i think that just i think that's what made it for me it's just what a great editorial decision yeah i loved it, it. It, it it's a special place for a lot of people who consumed it like people like you and me it was also a special place for people who worked there so the idea they captured that um is really really cool where could it have been better what do you think it was lacking you know what um at the screening, the director gave a, a bit of an introduction, and he clarified to the audience a very important piece of information, and that was that uh, in in the basement of this building, there are archival, uh, like, thousands of hours of footage on tape, and the issue is that they have a shelf life. They will eventually expire. Mm. So his goal was to create a documentary that's going to preserve this tape, even if it's a little bit of the history. I appreciate what he did. I understand it was done on low budget, but at the end of the day, this is now a movie that's going to be out there for for generations ahead. Um, it's only two hours, so it's not encapsulating that story fully. Um, it's a little bit of just a snapshot overview, but there's a lot of things that were overlooked. I sat there thinking, how did they not talk about this one massive piece of information? I don't want to say it because I, I want people to watch it. I okay. want to hear what okay. other people say. And then the other thing for me is that there was a whole generation of much music that was completely discredited. And to me, I found disrespectful. Um, and I think that that one generation that was missed was very crucial to the story of much music and also the conclusive years of much music i think could have been explored a bit further mm. it was a bit rushed 
That's my opinion. So I think it could have benefited as being a series. Andrika, I hope you I hope you don't think I'm putting you on the spot here. What was the generation that it missed? Like what what like generation or era of the station was missed? The very last generation. Well, I would say the second last generation is the one where there was a bit of criticism, but very light criticism in the documentary and then completely brushed over. Okay. So for me that was like, "Whoa. Okay, let's how about we unpack it?" But we never got to because, you know, it's only 2 hours, right? It, so that's why I think a series would have been a bit better here. So you again we're hobnobbing hanging out with the power brokers on friday this this film is eventually going to become widely available on crave but the tour continues so where to next where are some other folks in canada that people might be able to get nostalgic so next up it's going to go over to montreal at the rialto theater october oh, 17th yeah then october 18th it's going to go to the imperial theater in saint john um for full information on the tour and for tickets, you should check out 299queenstreetwest.com and spell out the words street and west in full. And also, the documentary will eventually come out on Crave in December to a wider Canadian Oh, nice, audience. nice. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if I'll catch the live show, but when that comes out on Crave, I'll be deeply interested because, Andrika, I can really attach my maturing into a young man to much music. It became available yeah. to me in Quebec when I was 13 or 14 years old and like that's a really important time in a young person in a young man's life like that's when you start taking some steps towards adulthood and i just thought this was the coolest thing with music especially the canadian alt-rock scene being featured in 1997 and 1998 and them doing these intimate and interactive shows where they would get mm. these huge artists to come in and play like hour long or 90 minute long sets and do these interviews mm -hmm. It was so creative, it was so cool, but that was my attachment to much music from abroad. You're a Torontonian, you grew up here. What did much yeah. music mean to you? What are your memories? Honestly, like for me, it was a massive part of my fabric and part of my childhood. And I think for a lot of Canadians, it's not just me. I mean, everybody had it on their TV at home and you come home from school, you watch much on demand or, you you know, on Saturday and intimate and interactive. Uh, I mean, this is a, a station that shut down streets and was putting on massive events, allowing people to meet people in person. One of my favorite memories is that one day, like Much Music just literally did a call at 12 p.m. on a weekday and was like, hey, tomorrow, Chris Cornell's coming by and uh, he's dropping by for a quick set. It was a 30 minute set. I got in uh, within the same day. I ended up running into like Ian from Billy Talent and then Sean Paul like later that afternoon. Com wow. Complete coincidence. Wow. And that, that's what much music was, which is always energy. And it really defined Toronto. And it's so sad that it dissipated. And I just hope it comes back. Yeah, what a cultural touchstone. And then you think about sort of that monoculture that goes along with it. it. It really was something that meant something to a lot of people, both inside the industry and outside the industry. I had a chance to work with uh, Rick Campanelli, formerly known as Rick the Temp, for when I was yes. at Entertainment Tonight Canada. <laughs> and like, first of all, I gushed. I was totally stargazed when I was around him. And number two, I was like, you're the nicest guy I think I've ever worked with. So yeah, just tremendous, 100%. tremendous people uh, in that much in that much music uh, legacy. Hey, Andrika, I'm glad you had a chance to take in the documentary. I'm glad you seem to enjoy it. Thank you for giving a quick review this morning. It's much appreciated. Yeah, I recommend it. Check it out when it comes out, or catch them on the tour. The Much Music Experience is touring across Canada to screen the film 299 Queen Street West. Like Andrika said, you can visit 299queenstreetwest.com to learn more about uh, showtimes or the experience. That's all the time there is for the show today. Until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun.
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.